You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Hebrews chapter 9, will you read with me, beginning at verse 23. Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, and the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place, year by year with blood that is not his own, Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. Last week, we looked at the first three of five unique qualities of the death of Christ that distinguish it from the sacrifice of the Old Testament priest, and this in verses 25 and 26. And so today we're picking it right up where we left off and covering the last of those two qualities of the death of Christ. And just to remind you of what we covered last week, we saw that the death of Christ was a one-time sacrifice. He entered heaven once. He made one sacrifice for sin with no need to repeat a sacrifice. That one sacrifice has done what millions of animal sacrifices could never do, namely to put away sin and to deal with sin through that one sacrifice. Second, we saw that it is an end-time sacrifice. It was the definitive and final and culminating and decisive work of God's redemptive plan in human history. That one sacrifice needs no second part in order to deal with sin. It needs no follow-up, no sequel to it. Nothing else needs to be done to accomplish the redemption of God's people. For that one-time sacrifice also inaugurated the final age, the messianic age. And so there is no sacrifice to follow this. There is no covenant to follow the new covenant. This is it. God has, in inaugurating the new covenant, initiated that final covenant in the final messianic age, and now it is all just mopping up the pieces from here on out because the work of redemption has been accomplished. Third, it was a public sacrifice. Unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, which were done behind the veil, and so they were shrouded in some mystery and, and some enigma there as to actually what went, what went on, and nobody ever saw that. In contrast to that, the sacrifice of our Lord was public on a cross outside of the busiest city in the land of Israel on the busiest day of the Jewish calendar, along the busiest street in the land of Israel on that day, the one that went right up to the Temple Mount. It was right there in front of everybody that that sacrifice, that atonement was provided, and so it was public in front of the world's watching eye, and then it has been written down and published to the world in Scripture, and now it is proclaimed to the world by His people. It is a public atonement. And so there are yet two more qualities, a powerful sacrifice and a personal sacrifice. And so we are in verse 26. You'll see that he says, Otherwise he, that is Christ, would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, that's a one-time sacrifice, at the consummation or the end, the fulfillment of the ages, he has been manifested. That's the public element of it. And now the powerful part of his sacrifice, to put away sin, then the personal element by the sacrifice of himself to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And what 
concerns us today. For the bulk of our time, we're going to be, we're going to spend talking about this act of putting away sin. What does that mean? And what are the ramifications of Christ's work of putting away sin? That is a purpose statement I want you to notice. He was manifested in order to do this. So there is a divine and intentional purpose behind the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus was not the wrong person at the wrong place at the wrong time. Jesus was not a victim of events that surrounded him or of his circumstances. He was a volunteer. His death was not something that men planned. It was something that was planned in eternity past by the triune God when the Father gave a people to the Son and the Son agreed and covenanted to come into the world and to offer a sacrifice that would redeem those people and the Holy Spirit pledged to regenerate and to renew and to bring to salvation all those for whom the Son has died who are the very ones that the Father has given to Him. That was the the agreement of salvation. That is what is behind the redemption of mankind. So there is an eternal purpose behind the Son manifesting Himself publicly. And what is it? It is to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, He was not trying to redeem sinners. He was not trying to accomplish something. He was not trying to pay the price for sin. He was not doing everything that He could do only to leave the rest up to us to fill in what was lacking. In the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he has done something finally and fully and completely and perfectly and forever. He has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So what does it mean that he put it away? That word is used, there's forms of that word that is translated here, put away. There's a root word and then there's a prefix, a prefix to that word. Uh, that root word with multiple different kinds of prefixes are used elsewhere in Scripture, so it's not an uncommon word, though this particular form of this word is only used twice in the New Testament, both times here in the book of Hebrews. The last time that it was used was back in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18. You can look there if you would like, but I'll read it to you. Hebrews seven eighteen, speaking of the old covenant and its weakness and uselessness, says, For on the one hand there is a setting aside, that's the word, a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. The word that's translated put away there is a word that means to remove, to annul, to cause, to not continue. It describes making something to cease continuing, to put away, to put to an end, to annul. It is an abolition, an annihilation, an abolishing. It describes a destruction, a dissolution. Are you done yet? An abrogation, a disannulling, a destroying, and a disarming. Do you get the sense of it? So this is what has been done to the old covenant, the old commandment. Now, why did why did God do that to the old commandment? You remember the old commandment was put aside or set aside because it was weak and useless. What was it weak and useless to do? To cleanse the conscience, to put away sin, to take sin away, to deal with the sin issue finally and fully, to redeem anybody, all those animal sacrifices and the commandments of the old covenant that regulated the animal sacrifices, they were weak and useless to that end. And so God has now abrogated, set them aside, done away with them, destroyed that covenant. It is no more. It is gone. It is no longer a consideration for the people of God. We saw that back in Hebrews chapter 7. Well, concerning sin... The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ has done exactly that on behalf of all those people for whom he has died. Jesus did not come to cover up sin or to dress it up or to excuse it or to dismiss it or to shrug it off or to simply say, well, boys will be boys. They are, after all, only humans. What can you expect of them? Poor creatures of clay. 
God did not come, or Jesus did not come to redefine sin, to laugh at our sin, to give us a different perspective on sin, to give us a a, a better ego or self-perspective or self-evaluation so that we wouldn't think so lowly of ourselves. He did not come to do anything other than to put away sin. Concerning sin, he has put it away. Now, this is obviously not the only thing that Jesus came and, and, and did. There are other things that Christ came. He came to display the Father. He came to train the disciples. He came to obey the law. He came to establish righteousness. He came to present the kingdom. He came to preach the gospel, etc. He came to be an example to us. There are a lot of other things that Christ did, but in terms of our text here concerning sin, Jesus has not simply excused it or dismissed it or massaged a little bit or or told us that it really isn't that big of a deal and God's just going to brush it all off. He didn't come to do any of that. He came to put sin away, to disarm it. And he did this. It's a Notice that it is to sin and not sins. Do you notice it's singular? A lot has been made of this, and I think rightly so, that the author here is not describing just some, some sins or one or two sins or even a category of sins. He is speaking of something that is more comprehensive, not particular sins as if Jesus died for the really bad sins, but we have to pay off all of the lesser sins. And he's not talking about a certain category of sins, as if Jesus died for all of your sins against God, but your sins against man have to be paid for by you and by what you suffer or what you do. Jesus didn't come to just mitigate certain effects of sin, to just deal with its penalty and leave its guilt remaining, or to just deal with the guilt of sin and to leave its power remaining. Concerning sin as an entity... As, as this big, hideous thing that has invaded God's perfect creation, concerning sin, on behalf of those for whom he has died, he has annulled it, he has destroyed it, he has removed it, he has put it away, he's taken it out of the way, he has nullified it in every respect, and not just a sin or a class of sins or a category of sins or a group of sins or a kind of sin, he has done this for sin in its totality on behalf of those for whom he has died. So John Owen writes this. Now, John Owen is a Puritan, so this is a paragraph, but it's actually one sentence. That's how the Puritans wrote. This is, You'd almost read like a Puritan subtitle. Their subtitles were longer than some chapters in any of my books. But here you go. Here's what John Owen writes. Wherefore by sin he, that is the author of Hebrews, wherefore by sin he intends the whole of its nature and effects, in its roots and fruits, in its guilt, power, and punishment, Sin absolutely and universally sin as it was an apostasy from God, as it was the cause of all distance between God and us, as it was the work of the devil. Sin in all that it was and all that it could affect or all the consequences of it. Sin in its whole empire and dominion as it entered by the fall of Adam, invaded our nature in its power, oppressed our persons with its guilt, filled the whole world with its fruits, gave existence and right unto death and hell with power to Satan to rule in and over mankind. Sin that rendered us obnoxious unto the curse of God and eternal punishment. That was one sentence. In the whole extent of sin, he appeared to put it away. That is, with respect unto the church that is sanctified by the blood and dedicated unto God. So that there is no element, that was end quote by the way, so that there is no element of sin, no aspect of sin, no punishment for sin, no effect of sin, no power of sin that has not been dealt with entirely for those who are in Jesus Christ. He has put it away. He has destroyed it. Not a sin and not sins. But sin in everything that it means concerning you, believer, 
He has set it aside, put it aside, and annulled it. Does that apply to God's, does that apply to the punishment for sin? It does. First Peter chapter two, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross so that we might live to, die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds we are healed. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Romans 8 verse 1 says there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the punishment has been borne. If Christ has died in your stead, God cannot condemn you for your sin. It is that simple. If he is your substitute who died in your place to pay the price for your sin and he bore your wrath in his own body on the tree and he he suffered all of the curse of sin on your behalf and he has put it away, then I ask you this, who can condemn God's elect? Who can condemn the one for whom Christ died? If Christ has borne your wrath, then how shall you ever bear it? You never will. You never could. Because God will not punish the surety, the substitute, and then turn around and punish the sinner. So here is our hope and confidence. We can say there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because our surety, our substitute, has died in our place. And if he has died in our place, then how shall we ever bear any punishment for our sin? We never shall. Listen, believer, you will never see the frown of God toward you for your sin. Never. He may discipline you. The discipline is not punishment. Discipline is discipline. Discipline is different than punishment. Punishment is him pouring out his wrath against your sin. Discipline is him producing the fruits of righteousness and sanctification in your life and bringing your life into conformity to his word and to his will. That's what discipline does. You will never, if you are in Jesus Christ, you will never bear or see the punishment for any sin that you have committed, past, present, or future. Why? Because concerning you, he has put away sin. It is dealt with in the death of his son, by the sacrifice of himself. What about power of sin? Are we still slaves to sin? If you're in Jesus Christ, he's still a slave to sin? You were at one time. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're still a slave to sin. All you can do is sin. You can do nothing else but sin. You can choose which sins you sin. You can choose where you sin and how you sin and with whom you sin and how much sin you commit, but you can only choose to sin because you're a slave to sin. But if you are in Jesus Christ, you have been freed to live in righteousness. So now sin has no dominion over us, and we may choose to obey it in its lusts. That's a choice that we make. We don't have to obey it in its lusts, or we can choose to obey righteousness and yield our instruments as instruments of righteousness. But the slavery that we had to sin has been put away. Why? Because sin on behalf of his people has been put away by the death of himself. How about our guilt? Yeah, his death has cleansed our conscience from dead works, has it not? We already saw that back in Hebrews a few verses earlier. His death has cleansed us in our evil conscience from dead works. So now the guilt of sin has been removed. This doesn't mean that sin is no longer alluring. It is, but it does mean that sin no longer has my allegiance because I'm not its slave and I've sworn allegiance to another. It doesn't mean that we no longer feel guilty. Sometimes we do, but we no longer are guilty in the court of God because Christ has borne the guilt for our sin. What about death? Death also is a defeated enemy. Now, all of you are going to die. If that shocks you, I'm sorry that it shocks you. All of you are going to die, but that death is a defeated enemy. But the defeat of death itself was secured on the cross so that on the cross, death died So now we will no longer die. And the promise is that if he has secured the victory over death, that that our victory over death is secured because we are in Jesus Christ. So he has promised us a resurrection from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and 55 says, O death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? 
We can only say that because Christ has defeated death on the cross. So yes, we will physically die, but we will not eternally die. If you are in Jesus Christ, you're going to outlive death. There will come a time when death will be no more, but you will not be no more. And you will outlive death by age upon age upon age upon age. Death is the final enemy that will be defeated until he puts all enemies under his feet. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death is the final and last enemy to be defeated. Death will always rule in hell where unbelievers are, but it shall never rule over those on whose behalf Jesus Christ has put away sin because death is the effect of sin. And if he has put away sin on your behalf because he died in your place as your substitute, then death for you is no more. Now, this rotting body that you currently possess, you're going to die in that. It's going to go into the grave, but it will be resurrected. Revelation 21, verses 3 to 5 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Death will be no more. Right now, death is. And all this means is that that all of the effects of the, the sacrifice of Christ and him putting away sin, the victory over all of that is secured. The certainty of all of this is secured. But yet the realization of some of it is yet future for us. And so that is what we are looking for and longing for. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So that every effect of sin... Every power of sin, every influence of sin, every result and aspect has been finally and fully put away in the death of Christ. Our glorified bodies, casting Satan into hell, the wiping away of every tear, immortality, the new heavens and the new earth are all ours because in his death he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Every blessing you have received, past, present, and future, is all secured for you by the death of Christ in your place. Why? Because he has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And if he has done that, then sin no longer enters into the relationship that you have with the Lord in terms of your justification and your security in him. Sin is no longer a factor in that equation because it has been put away by the death of Christ once and for all. Annulled, removed, destroyed, completely rendered powerless. That is what he has done to sin on behalf of all those for whom he has died. So do not doubt, dear saint, And do not waver from this conviction that though it is true that we live in an age when the enemy seems to be winning battle after battle on every conceivable front, and it may, before we are done, seem as if all hope is lost, it is not. He has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. His victory is absolutely sure and secure. Why? Because he has put away sin. And it cannot turn out except exactly as he has promised that it will turn out. Our God deals with sin. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't turn his eye away from it and not deal with it or pretend that it doesn't happen. Our God deals with sin, and every single sin will receive its just reward. It will either be punished in the perfect sacrifice of the Son of God, or that sin will be punished in hell on the head of the impenitent sinner for all of eternity but every sin will be punished. It must be that way because God is a righteous and holy God and he has promised to deal with every sin. Concerning those for whom Christ has died, he has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I hope you're starting to understand how good a news that is. 
that he has dealt with it entirely. There was nothing else to be dealt with regarding sin in its power or its presence or its effects or its future than what Christ has already done. Nothing else is necessary for us to conquer that sin or to deal with the sin issue. No further sacrifice. This is why the author of Hebrews is making this point. He died once. How can he only die once? Doesn't that show how inferior his sacrifice is as a high priest in comparison to the other high priests who offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice? Isn't more better? No, in the case of sacrifices, more is actually less. The fact that they offered more sacrifices was evidence of the inferiority of those sacrifices. But our Savior has offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, and He has sat down at the right hand of the Father where He waits until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet, and the last enemy that will be conquered is death. He has put away sin by that one single sacrifice, that one act of suffering, that one atonement. He has forever dealt with sin in all of its manifestations and in all of its power and effects and influences for those who are in Christ Jesus. A perfect sacrifice. One sacrifice. And let me give you a solemn thought. This is something that not even hell itself can do. Putting away sin is something that not even hell itself can do. Eons from now, when the impenitent are in hell, after they have suffered a million years or even a million millennia, after all of that torment and all of that wrath and all of those years, the sufferings of hell will not have paid for one single sin, not one. It will not have mitigated any of the effects of sin. It will not have removed any element of the curse of God on them for their sin. Every single sin will be punished, and hell itself cannot put away sin. It cannot pay for sin. It cannot remove the effects of sin. It cannot deal with sin at all. If it could, then eventually hell would end. But Scripture says it is an everlasting punishment. And since it is an everlasting punishment, that means that a million eons from now, those in hell will still be God-hating, prideful, rebellious, blasphemous, impenitent sinners. And hell itself will not be able to change their hearts. Hell itself will not be able to grant them repentance or faith. Hell will not pay for their sin. Hell will not remove the curse. It will not mitigate the effectiveness of it because they are ones for whom Christ has not put away sin. And so they bear the wrath of all of their own sin and they deal with all of its consequences for all of eternity. Not even hell itself can put away a single sin. But Christ, for untold millions of people, with all of our untold hundreds of thousands of transgressions and iniquities and sins, He, by that one sacrifice, has entirely removed sin from His people so that we are pure before Him. Isn't that magnificent? He has done this so thoroughly that we read in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, that Christ came to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness Micah 7, verse 19 says, He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, He has removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah 38, verse 17, For you have cast all my sins behind your back. How is it that God can tread underfoot our sin, cast them behind His back, remove them as far as the east is from the west from us? How can He do that without compromising justice? He can do it because in the sacrifice of Christ, He, by the shedding of that blood, has put away sin by his own sacrifice. Therefore, God can be just and he can declare righteous the believing sinner without compromising his justice because Christ has borne the wrath for their sin. 
Now I ask you this question. Who benefits from this, this act of Christ on the cross? Who receives all of these blessings and these benefits? Whose sin is taken away? Whose penalty is paid? Whose wrath has been borne? Whose sin was actually laid on Jesus Christ? Who is redeemed by this sacrifice? And whose filth was removed? For on whose behalf did Jesus Christ put away sin finally and forever and completely by the sacrifice of himself? For whom did he do that? Did he do this for all men and women without exception who have ever lived? Or did he do this for his people, his bride, his sheep, his church, those whom the Father has given to him? On whose behalf is this work of redemption done? On behalf of all men or on behalf of his people? This is the debate between Calvinists and Arminians regarding the scope of the atonement, whether it is limited or whether it is unlimited. And typically it is cast in these terms historically. Some would say that Christ has done this and he has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself on behalf of all people so that he has paid the full cost of sin for all who have ever lived, every man, woman, and child, Pharaoh, the Amorite high priest in the Old Testament who offered child sacrifices, every unbeliever, those who have never heard the name of Christ and never been exposed to the gospel. He has done this on behalf of everyone who has ever lived. That is the Arminian position. Then there is the Reformed or Calvinistic position, which says that he has not done this on behalf of everyone who has ever lived. Instead, Christ died to pay for the sins of a select number, a definite number, those who are his by virtue of God's choice in election and God giving them to the Son. That is the Reformed doctrine of the scope of the atonement. So this is not a controversy. The scope of the atonement is not a controversy over how much God loves people. It's not an issue of the love of God, nor is it an issue of the graciousness of God, as if those who believe in limited atonement will say, I believe that God is this gracious but not this gracious. Or God is this loving, but not this loving. We're not limiting the love of God. We're not limiting the grace of God by suggesting that he died for a specific number. And it's not trying, this debate is not over trying to say, over trying to, to uh, deal with the issue of whom God is trying to save as if he has to give equal effort to save all men and he has to do it equally so that God does nothing more for me than he did for Pharaoh or nothing more for you than he does for the rank unbeliever, did for the rank unbeliever who is now suffering in hell. And this is not a debate over the value of Christ's work, whether his work on the cross was of infinite and eternal value or not. We're not debating any of that when we talk about the scope of the atonement. Because the question comes down to this one, and really this one alone. What did Christ actually accomplish on the cross? Did he provide a potential atonement a salvation for everyone or actual salvation for some? Is what he did only potentially efficacious and now it needs my faith to make it actual? Or did he infallibly and certainly secure the salvation and the removal of sin and the redemption of a definite number? Because we're not talking about the value of what he did. The value is infinite. The question is, to whom is it applied? Who receives the benefits of this? Does everyone receive the benefits of this? If we say that Jesus Christ did this equally for all men and that he has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself for all men, then we have to say that all men will be saved. Why would we say that? We would have to say that because if he has borne their wrath 
and he has suffered their punishment, if he has died as their substitute, then on what basis does God punish the unbeliever who is in hell? That is unjust. God will not exact a penalty for the sin of his people from the Savior and then exact it on the head of the sinner. So this is our confidence. We can say that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because we have one who has paid the price on our behalf. He has died in our stead. He has suffered in our place and he has borne that punishment in its fullness and in its entirety so that we can say he has put away entirely sin on behalf of those for whom he has died. Do we say that the Christ has put away sin or only potentially put away sin? What does the passage say? He has destroyed sin by that one sacrifice. On whose behalf? On behalf of all those for whom he has died. If he has died in their place, he has put away sin on their behalf. If he died in the place of all men, then he put away sin on behalf of all men. Therefore, hell is empty. That's the conclusion. If justice has been served on the cross, then justice has been served, and God cannot exact that same justice on the head of the sinner in the future. That is why we can say we will never face the condemnation of God. Will the Father fail to justify the one for whom Christ has died? I ask you these questions. I want you to think about them carefully. Will the Father fail to justify the one for whom Christ has died? He won't do that. He must justify the one for whom Christ has died. Why? Because Christ has borne his penalty. If Christ has borne that penalty, then the Father will justify him. For there, if Christ has died in his stead, he must be justified, he must be declared righteous, because he has no sin to pay for if Christ has paid for that sin. Will the Holy Spirit fail to save those whose sins have been borne by the Son of God? Will Christ himself fail to keep one for whom he suffered, bled, and died? Will he cast into hell one whose sin has been born in full and taken away and paid for? Can those who are in hell say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can sinners in hell claim that? Can sinners in hell claim that somebody else has borne all of their wrath and all of their punishment and he's put away sin on their behalf by the sacrifice of himself? Can sinners in hell claim that? They cannot claim that. Why? Because he died in the stead, in the place, as a substitute, a vicarious and voluntary substitute for his people. A sure and certain salvation that he has absolutely and perfectly secured. Either Christ has removed sin or he has not. He has either put it away or he hasn't. He's either paid the penalty or he hasn't paid the penalty. The atonement of Jesus Christ is only a potential atonement and it's waiting for your faith or something that you do to make it actual or in the death of Christ, he has fully, perfectly, completely and everlastingly secured the salvation of all of those for whom he has died. And I believe that it brings honor and glory to the work of Christ to see that sacrifice which he has done as something of infinite value and worth, something that he did in the stead of his people, his sheep, his bride, his church, those whom the Father has given to him, and that he has laid on that substitute all of the sin and all of the wrath of all who will believe, all of his people, from all of the ages, he has poured it all out on Jesus Christ. Because he knew exactly who it was that belonged to him. And Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he said to the Pharisees, the unbelievers who were standing there, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. 
If you were my sheep, you would hear my voice and you would come to me and I would give you eternal life. But you don't belong to me because the Father has not given you to me. But I die for those whom the Father has given to me, my sheep. So, I would affirm limited atonement. That's the end of that, I guess, right? (laughs) It's a powerful sacrifice. He has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, not potentially, but actually, and those for whom he died are saved by that death. Certainly, fully, perfectly, and everlastingly. All glory be to him. That is a sacrifice of infinite value and worth. To do that for any one of us is unthinkable. To do it for countless millions is absolutely, we will never be able to praise him enough for that sacrifice. A powerful one. Lastly, I'll just have a couple of minutes on this. It was a personal sacrifice. Our Lord did this not by offering up a goat or sheep or another person, but he did this by the sacrifice of himself. Though he enjoyed equality with God, both in position and nature, he left that position of glory in heaven. And though he is rich for your sake, he became poor. And he came to this earth and took upon him the form of a servant and humbled himself to the point of death, even a death on the cross. And he lived a life under the very law that he gave, and he lived it perfectly in this sin hole among sinners and amongst people who hated him and devils who opposed him. And he did all of this and then suffered and bled and died on a Roman cross and rose from the dead three days later. He did this, this his sacrifice of himself, of none other. He didn't do it. He didn't offer an animal. He didn't offer another human being. He gave of himself. And the glory and the the condescension from that position of glory and that enjoyment of that worship by the angels from all of eternity past and that fellowship with the Father from all of eternity past, that was something to give up. But it's not just that he gave up all of those things. He also gave up his life. And he died and gave his life as a sacrifice for others. Ephesians 5 verse 2 says Christ loved you and he gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. Ephesians 5.25 applies that to husbands and says, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. The church, a distinct group of people that are his. He died in her stead. He died on behalf of his bride. That's an example worth following, men. That's the example we're called to follow. He died instead of his church and he gave himself up for her. Galatians 1.4, he gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God, our God and Father. Galatians 2.20, he gave himself up for me. Titus 2 verse 14, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own people, for his own possessions, zealous for good deeds. Listen to the familiar words of Isaiah 53, and this had to have sounded odd to a Jew listening to this prophecy. Isaiah 53 verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Now, what would have stood out to the Jew? What was odd to their ear? Our griefs he himself bore. See, that was unique. Every Jew, when they offered a sacrifice, offered a sacrifice of another, an animal in that stead. And every priest, when he received that sacrifice, would offer up the sacrifice of another, an animal. No Jew ever offered himself in place for his sins. No Jewish priest ever offered a person in the place of that person's sins. Everybody was used to thinking and acting and and considering sacrifices in terms of offering up something else 
And then along comes Isaiah and says, our griefs he himself bore. Not an animal, not another. But this one would come and he would bear the sin of his people. He would stand in their stead. God would cause the iniquities of all of us, his people, to fall upon him so that he could put away sin forever and fully by the sacrifice of himself. That was unique. That was different. That he himself would bear our sins in his own body on the tree. This is a unique sacrifice. A one-time sacrifice, not repeated, not multiple offerings. An end-time sacrifice, no second part, no sequel. Nothing else to follow this in terms of dealing with sin. It's a public sacrifice out in public view, not hidden from people. It's a powerful sacrifice. It accomplishes what it came to do. He has borne our sin. It's not just potential. He hasn't just made salvation open to people. He is actually secured in all of his doing and dying. He has secured everlastingly the salvation of all those for whom he has died because on their behalf he has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And it's a personal sacrifice. He didn't offer another. He offered himself. That is our hope. That is our confidence. That is the glory of that sacrifice. That is the the glory of what he has done for us. So Charles Spurgeon would say this, and with this quote I close. Sin is clean gone. If you are in Christ, there is nothing that can be laid to your charge. The past, the present, the future, every sin was laid on Christ. Sins of tongue and brain and heart and hand and thoughts were all laid on Him. Sin against men, sins against God, adultery, murder, blasphemy, everything, all were laid on Jesus. He became, as it were, the common reservoir for all the sin of His people to meet. And then He emptied it all out by His atoning sacrifice so that the filth of His people is removed. Close quote. The filth of His people is removed by that one atoning death. It is finished. He has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself on behalf of all those who are in Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, Thank you for listening.